I had been home about a month when I was told that, hey, tomorrow you're getting on a plane and going back over there. Full of Al-Qaeda, explosions all the time. So when the president or select dignitaries come within our area of responsibility, we are tasked with providing EOD support to them. In the moment, you don't really get this feeling, oh, I'm going to go be a hero and go do something. You, in the moment, you just know that's time to do your job. Real Soldiers, Real Stories, brought to you by ArmyChap.com. Welcome to another edition of Soldier Stories. I am your host, Chaplain David Wright, and I'm excited to be here with one of our first sergeants, uh, one of our senior enlisted leaders in our, in our unit, and he has some stories that he wants to tell. But before we get into the story, can you just introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your personal background? Yeah, my name is First Sergeant Ryan Michael Gasser. A little bit of background about myself. I've been in for about 15 years now in the Army. And I joined back in 2005, July 2005, three days after Independence Day. I just kind of knew when I was uh, old enough to talk, really, and like kind of have an understanding, like you go on through life and actually have a job and a career. When I came to that um, realization as a child, the Army was something that I always said I wanted to do, and it just kind of stuck with me. And when I got to high school, I did pretty well in high school. I uh, got really decent grades, but I just really wanted to do something that brought me out of the classroom. And because you've been in the Army so long and because of the specialty community that you've been involved with, you have some deployment experience. How many times have you been deployed? I've been deployed four times, twice to Afghanistan and twice to Iraq. And so you're going to tell us uh, a story about one of those deployments. Yeah. And so I'll, I'll let you paint the background on the situation and then get to the specific story, but uh, take it away. Yeah, so my deployment story uh, is actually my very last deployment. It was probably the most kinetic deployment that I've ever experienced. Um, when I say kinetic, I mean there was a lot of, there was a lot of bullets flying, there was a lot of bombs being dropped, um, there was a lot of IEDs being found and cleared, there was a lot of action going on during that deployment. There wasn't really any low points. So was this Iraq or Afghanistan? This was Afghanistan. Specifically, it was in Nangarhar, Afghanistan. I was attached to a SF unit. They call themselves uh, teams, and so I was attached to a specific team that, that was assigned to a specific valley in Nangarhar, and our, we were, our mission there was literally to clear ISIS out of this valley. So you're working with special forces for the whole deployment? Yes. And living out there, doing what needs to be done. Yes, so, and that's exactly right. We, we actually lived out there. There was a few um, special forces teams that rotated in and out, um, but me, myself and my team, we stayed out there because EOD support was, there's not a lot of us to go around. And so uh, the teams had to um, essentially share the resources. So every time a team would come in and come back out, uh, the EOD team, my team, would just stay out there and continue to support them. We spent probably, I would say, over 120 days straight of just being out there and living out of a local national's house that had been um, evacuated and vacated 
or abandoned, I should say, because because of the wartime activity that was happening out there. ISIS had taken a hold of this valley. Much of that valley was cleared out of any kind of um, innocent civilians. Uh, we were living out of one of the civilians' houses that was kind of broken down, um, but still somewhat intact, and um, that was essentially our outpost. As far as the story itself that I wanted to share, it was a specific mission that we went on in order to attempt to clear the ISIS fighters out of the valley. So the valley split up uh, by a river, it goes down straight, it's a pretty wide valley, um, and there's two roads that go uh, skirt the outside of it uh, along the, uh, the foot of the mountains on each side. And so any time that we went out, we needed to go down both roads um, to secure. And so one element on one side would uh, take care of their side, the other element on theirs, the other would take care of theirs. But we couldn't really provide support to one another because the distance across the valley was so great. I mean, we could provide support in some aspects, but not to the fullest capacity that we normally would be able to. This story isn't necessarily about myself. This is actually one of those ones where I was kind of a bystander in the event just because there wasn't all that much my side could do because the other side had gotten into contact. When I say contact, they got into a gunfight. Um, again, bullets were flying and uh, bomb scenes started being dropped. And so uh, the ground force commander was calling in uh, for air support with the JTACs. Um, JTACs are the air force um, controllers on the ground that tell the planes where they need um, to provide support at. And so as we're, as the other side's being engaged, we have our own security posture set up. And as we were doing our work on our side, we start seeing these uh, F-16s coming down and um, providing the air support that they're calling. And I can honestly say I've never seen anything like that when it comes to air support doing what they did. Like it was a very, very uh, interesting maneuver that they did and it was very dangerous. Um, very brave at the same time. Uh, the pilots, they came down, they swooped down into the valley, pulled up about 100 feet off of the deck. And when I say the deck, I mean the ground, which is a very, uh, very dangerous move, but it was really the only way they could provide the kind of support that the guys needed on the ground. They fired off their, their cannons and did what they needed to do to suppress the enemy fighters, and then pulled up immediately um, right after doing their strafing run and just in time to not hit the mountains on the other side of the valley. So it sounds like given the terrain, the fighter pilots, F-16 pilots, really had to do some dangerous maneuvers. We're talking about some of the most highly trained pilots in the world. Oh yeah. And it sounds like they, they did their job that day. Oh yeah, they definitely did, and it really stuck in my head, like, it's hard to really explain the awe of it happening, because it all happened so quick, but when it did, like, these things came screaming over our heads, it was very loud, it was very uh, earth-shattering, and I know if I felt that way, that probably struck a lot of fear into um, the enemy on the ground, especially when they have large caliber bullets being fired at them as well, and so I think it was extremely effective, and um, very beneficial to our guys that were on the ground trying to fight these guys. And that was just from my perspective of looking in. Now whenever we got back, the mission was over, there was actually a lot more to that story. And 
It turns out that my team member, who was supporting that side, he did probably one of the most valorous things that I've personally ever experienced in the Army. And uh, essentially, when they were in this gunfight, they were stopped movement because the enemy had actually set up an ambush. And the ambush consisted of a, um, a complex attack where they put IEDs in the road, they stop our movement, and then um, start firing on us with large caliber weapons, machine guns, RPGs, um, things of that nature. And so essentially the convoy could not move uh, due to the terrain that um, was there. They had to get to a spot where they can get the vehicles turned around, but they couldn't do it um, because of the restriction of the road at the time. Either you had a drop off or you had a mountainside right next to you. So my team member under, under uh, the support of fire and also receiving fire, um, he had to low crawl out there and take care of these IEDs that were blocking the way. They already had one truck get struck by an IED, and so he had to go out there, and that's part of the job. That's part of being an EOD technician is when the time comes, when your number is uh, up to go and uh, fulfill your uh, call to service, that's, that's the kind of danger we have to put ourselves in. A lot of people don't really realize that whenever we talk about EOD. You don't think about having to do our job with bullets flying over your head at the same time. Um, everyone has a picture of a guy, everyone mentioned EOD or a bomb technician, and he's in the bomb suit, he's going down, he's a very clunky uh, individual going down because um, he has all this armor on to protect himself from an explosive blast to take care of this IED. And this mission said that um, we were on, we did not have that. We did not have all that protection. From the enemy's perspective, this is just another soldier going down, low crawling to go take care of this IED, but this soldier is a, has a very, a very special skill set that's um, coveted by the Army, and so he's out there taking care of what needed to be done in order to save the element on the ground. Do you know how, about how far he had to crawl from the vehicles to the IED site? It was probably about 50 feet but 50 feet full of bullets flying in all directions, I'm sure. Yeah. And not only to get there, but then to have to think through step by step mm -hmm. under duress how to defuse that, that device. Mm -hmm. Could you see that from where you were, or, or was it far, too far away and you heard about it after you got back? He was too far away, I, and I remember hearing radio traffic about EODs going down to take care of the IED so that we can get to our turnaround point, but you don't really get the full picture over radio traffic because um, there's a lot going on other than that. And so I actually did not know that any of this happened until we all um, came back and were going over our AR and how the mission went. And so he had to be confident enough to give the rest of the, of the team a thumbs up hey, we can go forward now because he's got to know if, if he hasn't diffused it correctly, people are going to get blown up. Mm -hmm. And so uh, do you know about how long it took him to diffuse that? I think from start to finish, like starting from the vehicle, from his place of cover, going out and um, getting rid of the hazard and then coming back, it probably took approximately 15 minutes or so. So the rest of the soldiers are 
are trying to stay alive in the in the meantime. Right. I it sounds like this is already an adrenaline filled situation. Oh, definitely. So tell us how it, how does it work when adrenaline's already pumping? One of the things that happens to your body when adrenaline's pumping is your hands shake. So when you're trying to defuse a bomb and adrenaline's pumping, is that something that you all are trained on or you just have to get through it and do what you're trained to do? So um, to a point, we can train to adding a lot of stressors into our training. And it's what we attempt to do anytime we do any kind of training is to add additional stressors, whether it be like putting large time crunches on ourselves or um, utilizing simulators that um, simulate explosive blasts or gunfire or things of that nature. We try to implement that kind of stuff as much as possible into our training. But when it comes down to it, you, you can't really affect too much on how your body reacts chemically. I wonder uh, if you had talked about, about what was going through his mind as he's crawling forward or diffusing. What prompted him to do that? Did you have any follow-up discussion with him? Yes, uh, he said, like, honestly, I'm just doing my job. I'm here to, he said that he was here to do a mission. I mean, and he knew, like, this needs to be done. It's time for me to step up and do what I have to do to make sure all the guys around me that are counting on me uh, come back home safe. And so, that, and in the moment, you don't really get this feeling, I'm going to go be a hero and go do something. You, in the moment, you just know that's time to do your job. I bet you're pretty proud of him. Oh yeah, when definitely. you heard about that, yeah, and I, I'm sure that as you spend that much time with anybody, much less special forces soldiers, there's a pretty tight bond that develops when you're living out there and your lives are depending on one another. Oh yeah, there definitely is. There's a lot of camaraderie that is built. Um, like you said, whenever you have a tight knit group, you just get even tighter. You really get to know one each other, and you you really learn to work as a very cohesive team. It's a very unique experience that you don't really get to experience outside of the military. So you've been deployed four times. That particular deployment, there was a lot of, a lot of enemy contact in different ways. Uh, why is it that that's the story that you chose to share with us today? Like I said, when I started, it's probably one of the most, uh, the more valorous uh, stories that I've personally been able to witness. I mean, there's a lot of valorous stories out there. I mean, you can go and read up on any kind of Medal of Honor or Silver Star recipient. But that is really the one that stood out to me because I have personal ties to it. And it's not really a story that was published before. And so I think it's a good thing to get that out. Absolutely. And that's exactly what we're doing in these podcasts. We're taking these macro situations of war in Afghanistan, for example, and narrowing it down to one isolated incident. And uh, it sounds like you've got to do, in your time in the Army, you've got to do exactly what people hope to get to do when they sign up, uh, and that's uh, serve their country, uh, maybe deploy and fight. Looking back after these years, uh, does it feel satisfying? And what does it feel like to look back and know that you have done exactly what you've set out to do? It does come with a sense of fulfillment. I could also say I'm tired. <laughs> I got about five years left, and I'm definitely looking forward to what the future holds for me whenever I do end up getting out. But I know for a fact once, once I leave this line of work that I'm going to miss it.
There's no doubt about it. I'm gonna. It's definitely gonna hold a special place in my heart. Um, there'll always be that for UED technicians. And if I n knew now, or if I knew back then what I know now, I would still have made the same decision to join the UED community. I think it was um, the best decision I could have made for myself at the time. So, thank you very much for sharing your story with us. I think that will inspire and encourage a lot of people out there and I appreciate your time and your service to our nation. Yeah, of course. And I thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Soldier Stories. I am Chaplain David Wright and I thank you for tuning in. Please consider subscribing or leaving a rating or a comment as that will help more people find this podcast. You're also welcome to check out my website, armychap.com, to read my posts and see some pictures of what we do. It's my hope and prayer that you find inspiration and encouragement through this program, and remember to put your trust in our great and loving God who daily bears our burdens. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.